and welcome to Novel Thoughts, a weekly book chat podcast hosted by me, Sapphire Bates. And me, Joseph Dance. Two book lovers from Ramsgate, East Kemp. This is the podcast for the big readers and the book lovers. Once a month, we deep dive on one particular book, maybe an old favourite or something new and exciting, and we will read and discuss it. The rest of the time, we're spoiler-free, covering everything from new releases, old gems you might have missed, long lists, short lists, author spotlights, as well as the occasional interview. We'll also take questions from you, our lovely listeners. Hello, hello, Joseph. Hello, Sapphire. How are you? I am not too bad. So this week we are going to be having a spoiler-free chat about two big releases. We are. Two recent releases, I should say. So Piglet by Lottie Hazel and The Vulnerables by Sigrid Nunes. Cannot wait. A little note for our listeners. We're going to try our best not to spoil either of the novels for you guys. But please do be aware you will find out parts of the story, meet some of the characters, that kind of thing. But we're aiming to not spoil the plot for you. So, before we get into that, Joseph, what's going on? I went to the cinema this week for the first time in a long time. Thank you. (laughs) Significant life milestone for me at 42. I went to see the new Studio Ghibli film. Are you a fan of Studio Ghibli? No, that doesn't mean anything to me. Can you tell me, please? (laughs) They are a Japanese... I'm outraged. They are a Japanese animation studio, and they've been making films, big kind of blockbuster animations, since the 1980s. And they're a bit wacky. They're kind of a, they're like a, a nice alternative to Walt Disney's kind of mainstream cartoons and animations. What are some of their films? Can you tell me? My Neighbour Totoro, Spirited Away. No. Nope. I think it won an Oscar actually in 2001. Doesn't uh, ring a bell. Anything else? One of, one of my all-time favourites, How's Moving Castle. No. Nope. So that was a film that came out in 2004-05 when you were... 18 months old? (laughs) (laughs) I wish. But it's actually based on one of my favourite children's books by Diana Wynne-Jones. It's the same title. Yeah. The film that I went to see was called The Boy and the Heron, which is based on a book by a Japanese author. And shamefully, I can't remember his name, but I think the book's called something like... The Boy and the Heron? (laughs) (laughs) Too easy. It's called... This is how you live. No, someone can write in and correct me on that one. But anyway, the film's called The Boy and the Heron and it's supposed to be Hayao Miyazaki's last film. So he's the head honcho at Studio Ghibli. Mm -hmm. But he has been saying this for a long time, so he might make another. I enjoyed it. I don't think it was... It's the best film in the Studio Ghibli family. Sorry, producer James has just alerted me (laughs) to the fact that the book is actually called How Do You Live? Thank you, James. The plot of the film is basically a boy who's lost his mother during the bombing raids in the Second World War. Mm. And he moves with his father and his stepmother to a country house and discovers a fantastical world just beyond the confines of, of this mansion where he's now living. Some fantastic voice acting from Florence Pugh. Do you know who Florence Pugh is? Yes. And that guy from Twilight, whose name I can never remember. Robert Pattinson? Robert Pattinson. Is that the one? Yeah. Or is it Patterson? Patterson? Pattinson? The, the vampire anyway, guy. He's, he's literally a cartoon heron in this film, so we don't have to worry too much about offending <laughs> him. But he, he does a fantastic job, and I think Willem Dafoe's in it as well. So nice. yeah, an all-star cast. I really enjoyed it. So I think I'm going to go back and watch it a few more times. But yeah, it's good. Mm, that sounds good. And I need to go and investigate the other films you've mentioned, because... I feel very useless just saying, no, 
No, no. I think you'll really enjoy them. I'll make you a list. Yes, please do. If that doesn't that sound too patronising. No, that'll be good. Um, I watched this week, since we're talking about things we've seen. Yes. I was watching, it's either Boy Swallows Universe or The Boy Who Swallows the Universe. Oh. I the think Australian I've... Yeah. show on Netflix. And he's like a young guy and he's got a brother who's got selective mutism. Yes, Who writes in the air. Okay, I've literally just seen a clip of this. So what did you think? Yeah, really enjoying it. It's a slow start, but in a good way. Doesn't kind of rush into all of the drama. It's quite sad at at times because they're quite a dysfunctional family that the characters that we're kind of seeing. But it's also very funny. There's some really hilarious parts in it. It's well filmed. I think it's quite well written. The acting's quite good. I've, I've been enjoying myself. So is there anyone notable in there or is it kind of a cast of unknowns? I don't know any of them, but that's not to say they're not notable. <laughs> Just that, you know, I'm a book girl. TV and film are not, although I enjoy a good film, they're not my area of expertise. So perhaps someone's going to write in and say, you donut. These are very famous people. I don't think they are. So like Charlie Chaplin, Laurence Olivier and Mariah Carey could be in this film and you wouldn't know. I think I'd recognise them. I think you would. Yeah. I know Mariah Carey and I, I, Charlie Chaplin's the one, he's got the moustache, hasn't he? He is, yes. Yeah, so I feel like at least those two I'd recognise. <laughs> good. I'm going to give that a go on your recommendation. Yeah, it is. It, I, I think you should. It's good. And then we decided to watch, do you watch Last Week Tonight with John Oliver? No, but I am a fan of John Oliver. Yeah, he's hilarious. I really like him. Um, we decided to watch his show last the last week tonight. We're watching it back from the beginning, so it started in 2014. Okay. And we're having a great time watching that. It's uh, really funny, and it's a reminder of all the things that kind of happened in the past, because it's obviously a news show. He's just incredibly witty, and I like the fact that he just he seems to be on the right side of history. He seems to have a good take on all of the issues of the day. Yeah, and a good moral compass, I think. Yeah. Like, so I'm enjoying that and I highly recommend either if you haven't watched it, giving it a watch. But if you have watched it, go back to the, the ones from the very beginning. Shall we move on to books where I'm a bit more confident? Yes, <laughs> me too. <laughs> what you've been reading? Well, I'm going to tell you what I've been reading. But do you want to hear about my birthday book stack? I do. Oh, happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you, listeners. I just had a... Um, I'm not thanking the listeners because obviously no one said happy birthday. Um, <laughs> rude. <laughs> rude. <laughs> for not knowing. I didn't tell anyone. It was my birthday on Monday and I had a few days away in London and accidentally managed to pick up maybe 20 or so books. Nice. Acc- that happens. Accidentally. They just fell into my rucksack and yeah, Apple Pay just goes off. And anyway, here we are. What'd you get? I got... Right, I've got a photograph of the stack here, which I took, and I'm gonna, just going to run through them quickly. I got Fierce Attachments by Vivian Gornick, which nice. is a really brilliant essay collection about her relationship with her mother. I got the new Banana Yoshimoto. Uh, That's a great find. The Premonition. Yeah, which has like a beautiful cover. Have you seen that? Yeah, really pretty. I got Margot Jefferson's memoir, Constructing a Nervous System which won the Rathbones Prize last year, which we're going to talk about. Yeah, I want to read which that. Which I'm really excited to read. I got Black Girl No Magic uh, by Kimberly McIntosh, which is about her experiences of growing up as a black woman in South London and the UK. And I've just started reading that. It's fantastic. And I want to talk about that more. I got How Should a Person Be by Sheila Hetty. Yes. I've read, is it Pure Colour? Yes. And Motherhood. Yes. Her memoir about deciding whether she wants to be a mother, which I thought was so powerful. Yeah. But I've not read this. This is a novel, so I wanted to go back to this one. I picked up two novels by Nella Larson, Quicksand and Passing. Have you heard of these? No. 
Okay. Well, Passing apparently is really famous, so I, re- I really want to read that. It's been on my list of classics that I've neglected for a long time. That will be why I haven't heard of it. Right. I picked up a copy of The Voyeur by Alain Robgrier in translation of, mm-hmm. um, just because it had a really pretty cover, and it's a detective story, and I don't read enough of those. Oh, 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 oh. I picked up My Nemesis by Charmaine Craig. Have you heard of this? Yes. Is it good? I haven't read it. It looks amazing, just from the blurb. Yeah, it sounds really good. Um, really good. I also, <laughs> <laughs> I also picked up The Vagrants by Yuen Lee, yeah. which is one of her early novels I've not read. After last week and me gushing about Isabel Weidner, I managed to find one of their earlier novels, Sterling Carrot Gold. And I picked up Wandering Souls by Cecil Pinn. Really good find. Which has like got massive rave reviews. Mm. And when I went to buy this book, literally five people stopped me to tell me how great it was. I felt like we had like an impromptu book club just happening right there. I love that. It took like 25 minutes to buy a book, which I don't mind, by the way. Um, yeah, I'm kind of into that. I like that. Oh, one more. Okay. Um, Gentrification is Inevitable and Other Lies by Leslie Kern. I've not heard of that, but it does. that sounds up my street. She wrote a book called Feminist City, which was brilliant. Mm, okay, that rings a bell. Yeah, so that's my birthday book stack. Good haul. And I'm sure I'll be talking about lots of these on forthcoming episodes. Mm, nice. So what have you been reading? I read Gillian by Hallie Butler. Have you heard of Hallie Butler? She did a book called The New Me. Yes. Yeah, I've heard of that one. This one was published by Orion. I think the paperback came out in 2020, which is, wow, almost four years ago now. Uh, Feels like just the other day. Hallie Butler is a Chicago writer. So she's published two books over here in the UK. Gillian, which is the one that I've just read, uh, and which was actually her debut, but I've done it the other way around. And The New Me. And she has a third titled Banal Nightmare coming out in August of this year, which I'm quite excited for. And she actually won the Granter's 2017 list of best young American novelists, which I thought was quite cool. That's some accomplishment. Can I just check that title with you? Did you say Anal Nightmare or Banal Nightmare? Banal Nightmare. Okay. But Anal Nightmare is a book I might like to read. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Moving swiftly on. Tell me more. Not about Anal Nightmare, about the book, please. Goodness sakes. The book follows two perhaps neurotic or certainly dysfunctional women who work together at a gastroenterologist's receptionists. Okay, so we're on topic. Yeah, and we're on another tongue twister as as per last episode. Um, And one of these women is Megan, who's a 24-year-old who essentially kind of hates her life and seems to hate everything, more or less. Uh, The girl essentially is very depressed. And the other is a 35-year-old single mother called Gillian. So Megan is is almost grotesquely negative about life and obscenely critical of everyone around her. And Gillian is kind of like the counter opposite in that she's grotesquely optimistic about life, despite the fact that her life seems to be falling apart from our point of view. And she kind of just ignores it all. I love the way you say grotesquely optimistic and we're both nodding as if to say, yeah, who would be like that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What not. a freak. <laughs> Um, so this, this book kind of gives you a glimpse into the two women's lives, which collide at work, but we also see their lives outside of the workplace. It switches between multiple points of view, providing us a real look at these women, who they are and kind of they're both in their own eyes and those of the people around them. Okay. Um, it's a fascinating book in a sort of horrifying way. You, you kind of both feel for the characters and then also despise them at times. You'll definitely laugh. You might scowl. 
you might roll your eyes and you might feel a little bit awkward, but all of those things I mean in a good way and I think you should read it. I like any book with a bad female narrator. Yeah, see, I'm hit and miss with those. I What do people call them? Isn't there a... There is a word, isn't there? There's a yeah, name for there's them. Yeah, the cool kids have a name for it, um, which has completely gone <laughs> out of my mind and we're both just staring into each other's eyes like, nope. <laughs> We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to it. We'll work around. The only name I know is Manic Pixie Dream Girl, but that's something completely different. That's more it? old school, yeah. Is that old school? That's old school. That's <laughs> 90s. That's when the dinosaurs were roaming the earth. That was the last millennium. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I can't think, but, but it comes under the same umbrella of like My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Atessa. That's exactly the character I was thinking of, or uh, any one of her female characters like Eileen. Yes, yeah, um, which I don't always like. Um, I can find these kind of dysfunctional women quite moany and annoying in certain novels. Uh, but this one I really liked, and I really liked the new me, so I went for it. Do you want to know the other thing that I read? Yes, I'd like to know about the second book on your list. <laughs> Normal Women by Ainsley Hogarth. Okay. So it's published by Atlantic Books on the 4th of January 2023, so it's quite new. Right. Ainsley is the author of Mother Thing. Have you seen that with, like... Uh, it's almost got like the cartoon strips on the front. I think they're in like little rectangles and it's a, well, like a cartoon. <laughs> Very descriptive. Thank I you. haven't, but that sounds like another good cover. I've not even heard of this author, actually. I'm surprised you haven't because I think she'd be up your street. Okay. Um, some other thing came out, I think October 2022, or at least the paperback came out October 2022. And it was the New York Times best book of the year. Uh, it was CBC best book of the year. It was Cosmo's best horror novel of all time. Ooh. So it was well received, essentially, by quite a lot of people. So I'm surprised. Yeah, I don't read Cosmo. I do have a New York Times subscription, though, so I've clearly missed this. Yeah, oh, I don't have a Cosmo subscription. I'm so surprised. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to give you the synopsis. New mother Danny has a lot going on. She's just moved back to her hometown, where her father was once known as the Garbage King. She's fed up of not being a manicure-sporting, perfectly coiffed, normal woman. And most of all, she's worried that her seemingly healthy husband, Clark, will drop dead, leaving her and her new baby, Lottie, destitute. And then Danny discovers the temple, ostensibly a yoga centre. The temple and its guardian, Renata, are committed to helping people reach their full potential. And if that sometimes requires sex work, so be it. Finally, Danny has found something she could be good at, even great at, Meaningful work that will protect her and Lottie from poverty and provide true economic independence from Clark. But just as she's preparing to embrace this opportunity, Renata disappears, leaving Danny to step into another role entirely. Detective. Thoughts? I, there's a lot going on. I kind of, it was giving me beasting vibes with like multiple points of view and like really intricate storylines that crisscross and... I mean, it's not that. I would say completely not. Okay, don't want to read good, it then. Good, good. <laughs> yeah, I'm out then. I'm out. Stop talking about it. No, I mean, the book's described as darkly comic and a bit of a feminist horror story. Gruesome, I think, was used in some of the quotes. Now, I really loved this book. I read it in one sitting and it made me chuckle, but I really don't think it's particularly dark. It's definitely not remotely gruesome or scary. It does question the role of mothers and women in general as the homekeepers and looks at, like, the patriarchy and, I guess... The patriarchy is dark when you really think about it. Yeah. So it's kind of dark in that sense, and it's definitely got feminist elements to it. But the gruesomeness of it, I didn't really 
I didn't really understand. And the kind of horror, I was like, I don't really know what they're coming at with that because I didn't find that. But of course, there is the caveat that we have mentioned I might be desensitised. So perhaps some of you guys are going to read it and do come back to me if you feel differently. Or if you agree, I'd be quite interested to hear because I just felt like the description and the kind of quotes and reviews that I'd seen published really differed from my point of view on the book and how I walked away from it. I find this a lot nowadays with novels and the kind of PR blurbs that are put Mm. out about books. And we'll probably mention this with The Vulnerables, where a book is put into a particular genre or buzzwords are used and then the reading experience is just completely different. Not necessarily disappointing, but you're just like, okay, I was setting myself up for horror elements Mm. or romance elements and is this romance is this horror because this isn't scary yeah it's it's yeah like you say I I mean I I definitely enjoyed this I had a really good time reading it but it 100% wasn't what they'd set me up for or to to me anyway it wasn't yeah and you're not going to ask for your money back but no and I I definitely recommend this book it's great and I think Ainsley is, is really talented but I would I would kind of be saying to you guys, like, I'd look at this book as a comical book that looks at the roles of women and wellness in our current world. I think if you take it as that, then I think you in, you're going to enjoy it. Whereas perhaps some people might have gone off of the spiel around the book, which does make it seem kind of thriller-esque. And it's it's not mm-hmm. that at all. Mm-hmm. I'd be intrigued. Maybe I need to get you to read it so you can come back and... It's and definitely one from my list. Me. That synopsis yeah. sounds fantastic. Um, that's, that's going to the top of my TBR. Let me hold the cover up as well because you'll like it. Obviously, listeners, you can't see it, but it's got a woman who's got kind of... I don't know if it's meant to be blood or jam on a kind of pink knitted top. She's <gasps> kind of like a... Oh, I have seen this book. Yes. I've seen the cover. Yeah. It's nice, isn't it's, it? She's like a Betty Draper character. Yes. Looking yes. like she's off her face on pills. Yes, she could be. Let's move along, shall we? Yeah. But yes, a very good book. You should read it. What have you been reading? I have been reading two books. Well, I've read two books this week that I want to talk about. I've read more than two. My first book is Minor Details by Adania Shabley. I've heard of this, but I've not read it. So tell me about it. So it's translated um, from the Arabic by Elizabeth Jacquette. And it was published in the UK by Fitzcarraldo. So it's one of those beautiful little Eve Klein blue books. That get, mar- that get marked really easily, though. Yes, that is the only thing, um, if you guys are listening, if you could make them less. Yeah. Especially the non-fiction, which are white, oh, they end the up white. filthy. It's just like a dirty tea towel by the end of a yeah. read, isn't it? But the blue, I just think, I love those matte colours, but come on, guys, just, like, talk to your lab a little bit. Like, find another way of making these books. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. I think this book came out around um, 2020. It's a very short novel. It's mm. only 112 pages. But it's incredible. In a very, very short space, Shibley manages to tell an incredibly powerful story, which has as its starting point the rape and murder of a young Bedouin woman in 1949, not long after what the Palestinians call the Nakba, which I think the Israelis call the War of Independence, mm-hmm. which is when basically hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were displaced expelled from which basically was just this little thing from their land yeah just a little thing that we're not even talking about today um horrendous a horrendous huge yeah huge thing anyway carry on absolutely so you can imagine this is a pretty timely novel Mm. and it's a story told from two perspectives so in the first half of the book we follow an israeli commander and his troops back in the summer of 1949 when the murder actually took place and we see all that happen firsthand The second half of the book then follows an unnamed woman from Ramallah, 
who reads about the murder one day in a newspaper and noticing that it took place exactly a quarter of a century ago on her birthday, she suddenly feels compelled to investigate what she calls this minor incident as she sees it, the death of this unknown girl. And so she she goes on a journey to visit various archives and the site of the murder in order to try to make sense of what actually happened. The publisher's site, and I'm going to read a PR blurb now, called the book A Haunting Meditation on War, Violence and Memory, which cuts to the heart of the Palestinian experience of dispossession, life under occupation, and the persistent difficulty of piecing together a narrative in the face of ongoing erasure and disempowerment. As I said, I thought it was an incredible book. The juxtaposition in style and mood between the two sections of the novel is just pitch perfect. The first section with the commander is told in the third person. It's detached, almost procedural, but with such a phenomenal sense of of mounting dread. Mm. And then the second section flips flips this completely with a really rich first-person perspective. We're placed inside the head of this woman who becomes completely obsessed with this murder case, although beyond the initial coincidence of the date, she can't quite pinpoint why. She's never done anything like this. She's terrified of crossing checkpoints. She's in a constant state of anxiety that she's going to be picked up by Israeli troops, yet she drives herself hundreds of miles across the desert in search of the truth. This is Shibley's third novel to be translated. It was long listed for the 2021 International Booker Prize. I think that's when I first heard about it. And before that, it was shortlisted for the National Book Award mm. for translated literature. So I definitely recommend that. Yeah, I mean, it sounds incredible. It's, it's yeah, I've, I've seen it a couple of times and it's just one I really want to read. I will lend you my copy. Yeah, please. please Don't do. scuff it up, though. I can't make any promises. <laughs> There might be some tears on it too. Get those white cotton gloves out. Yeah, tears are fine. um, Yeah. Shall I talk about my second book, which features a highly unlikable female character? Yes. Have you gone dark and light? So a heavy book and a lighter book? I think I've just gone dark and dark. It's just different shades of pitch black. Brilliant. What was it? My second book is The Coming Bad Days by Canadian author Sarah Bernstein. And it's in a beautiful edition published by Daunt Books. And this came out a few years ago. I think it was April 2021. Yeah, I've heard of Sarah, but I've not heard of this particular book. Me too. And I was going to say many listeners will know Sarah Bernstein from her second novel, Study for Obedience, which Mm. I really enjoyed. A really bizarre little book and which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize last year. I think it went on to win the Giller Prize. I'm constantly learning about new prizes. So the Giller Prize is the prize for best Canadian novels and short stories. Oh, intriguing. Never heard of that. Yeah, another potential place for recommendations. Yes, yeah. So... Bernstein actually started her literary career, in fact, publishing poetry. And I think this novel really comes across as, as very lyrical and often quite beautiful at the level of the sentence. She pays a, she pays a lot of attention to, to imagery and the rhythm and the sounds of language to the point where in places um, her writing can often feel like re- reading really good prose poetry. Mm. yeah i see i do tend to avoid things that that any book that's described as lyrical there's a pause from me do you just think lyrical equals people whining no i think lyrical equals poetry and i'm not a poetry girl at all oh okay yeah no respect Um, and I, i i wouldn't stop me reading it but it always makes me pause. I have to, I think I'm, when things are described as lyrical i have to be really drawn in by what the book's about I have to, like, the story at the heart of it has to catch me enough that 
I can see past <laughs> the lyricalness. Yeah, absolutely. And I think words like lyrical definitely overused. It basically means people yeah. talking about their emotions in a nice way. Yes, and, and sometimes uh, it lands for me and sometimes it doesn't. Can I just say another one mm. is evocative. Oh, God, Whenever a book is evocative, I just think, what do you mean that people are remembering things and then there's a plot? Like, anyway... I'm with you. I mean, I'm making a face. I'm with you. We're all making faces here. So the the coming bad days. Let me tell you about the plot. Let me see if this hooks you. Let, I should say there's I hardly see any if plot. It's evocative. Okay. The coming bad days follows a thirty-something woman who, at the beginning of the book, she's just left the man she lives with, and she's moved into a little isolated stone cottage by herself in an unnamed university town, where there seems to be something nefarious happening. This might grab you although exactly what it is isn't really explained there's a sense of kind of like paranoia at the university where she works and her colleagues are really mean to each other and they like belittle their students um women especially seem to be subject to some kind of increased social threat there's two girls at the beginning of the book who go missing and that's kind of hanging over the plot for a while there's a hint of climate breakdown so it's kind of dystopian and there's a curfew that's been opposed, but again, it's never really explained why. Mm, I am intrigued. So halfway through the novel, she meets a woman called Clara, who personality-wise is almost her complete opposite. She's direct, she's passionate, and without wanting to spoil the plot, something happens, an act of violence, which makes the lead character question the way she leads her life and makes her look at her relationships the blurb says, I'm going to read you the blurb now. The Coming Bad Days is a penetrating portrait of feminine vulnerability and cruelty. And it compares the books to the work of Thomas Bernhardt and Rachel Cusk, Rachel Cusk and Gwendolyn Riley. Um, I have to say, I didn't really get the Gwendolyn Riley comparison, but this book definitely felt indebted to Bernhardt. Do you, have you read any books by him? No. He's a, an amazing 20th century writer. I'd really recommend him. And I think if you've read any of his books, later big novels like Extinction or Concrete, you will definitely see similarities here, especially in terms of the, the main characters detached and quite spiteful in places. And I just want to read you this tiny passage, which just kind of shows how mean she is. Okay. So she's talking about swimming in the local lake when the weather picks up in July. And she says, I allowed myself to admit I had at times appreciated the summer days. I had enjoyed watching the flock of ducklings diminish one by one, picked off at the shoreline by foxes. I had listened to the muskrats snarling in the woodpile, to the mice choking on poison behind the walls. I had loved the world awfully. I had always known what I wanted. I wanted catastrophe. I cannot have been the only one. Hmm. Nicely read also. Thank you. You're welcome. If Audible's listening, thank you. So I really enjoyed this book and I would recommend it. Mm, okay. Yeah, I might give it a go. I'm definitely going to read minor detail and I'm, I'm intrigued by this one. So Good. We shall see. Do we want to quickly mention the Writer's Prize? Yes, we do. So the Writer's Prize shortlist, which was mm -hmm. announced on the 4th of January? Yes, and do you want to talk about the name change? Because as you say that, listeners might be thinking, what's the Writer's yeah, Prize? Yeah, what's the tea there? What went down in the Rathbones Folio Prize offices, as it used to be known? Yes, and no longer is. I'd love to be a fly on the wall at that editorial oh, meeting when they started throwing chairs at each other. So, yeah, no, basically... At last, Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> allegedly for us listeners at last year's prize ceremony apparently they it was announced that the investment management company rathbones was stepping down it was no longer going to sponsor the prize and then in november 2023 the award 
was rebranded as the Writers' Prize, and it's now funded by private sponsors. I, it's, <laughs> private sponsors sound so shady, doesn't it? Look. <laughs> yeah. like, like the underworld like Bert and my mum and oh no right yeah I was going with I was going <laughs> with going? I was going with really, really innocent okay like the no, underworld I was going, like murkier you know Julian like, Assange like we can't <laughs> allegedly we can't yeah like we can't name these private these private uh... let's name them who are they but we don't know we do know oh no we don't oh <laughs> Just trying to inject a sense of drama into the proceedings. So what I really like now about this prize mm. is that there are no judges. Well, it's the, the books are judged by the 350 members of the Writers' Academy. Do you know what my only... I, I do like this. Folio Academy, I should say. I guess my, not my concern, but with that many people... It's why you're not one of the judges. Oh, go on. Well, there aren't any judges, so... That's a lot of people to all be... How how are they ra- are they rating things? I mean, yes. apparently, like NetGalley, who do all of the eGalley mm. distribution for publishers, they've um, partnered with the Writers Prize, so they're kind of distributing all of these galleys to these three hundred and fifty writers, members okay. of the Folio Academy. And then I don't know what happens. Do they just like give everything a star rating or like a really crappy like Goodreads review? How do they weight this as well? Well, I don't know, but I mean, essentially, there are still judges. There's just now 300 and something of them. So it's kind of like the Oscars, you know, where everyone has to vote. And like, you could have been like a lighting assistant 350 million years ago, but you still get a vote. Yes. (laughs) Yes, I'm just processing what you just said, but yes. Yeah. Well, let's just hope that the the kind of the threshold, the standard is higher for the Folio Academy. Yeah, and and I... Otherwise, heads are going to roll. I said concerns, but I don't mean that in a bad way. I think it's interesting. I'm glad they've still managed to keep this going, even with a rebrand. So so what's on it? I know it's been recently announced. It's a mixture of fiction, non-fiction and poetry. So fiction is The Wren, The Wren and Enright. The Bee Sting, Paul Murray. Whoop. The Fraud, Zadie Smith, which I haven't read, but apparently she reads the audiobook in a Scottish accent. Yeah. Oh. So. Oh, okay. What? Non-fiction is Thunderclap by Laura Cumming. I think she's the Observer art critic or writer. Mm. I kind of want to read that. Apparently it's about her relationship with her father and art and it's a bit of a memoir as well. Okay. Doppelganger by Naomi Klein, which I've heard loads about. Yeah, I want to read that. Yeah, ditto. A Thread of Violence by Mark O'Connell. I also am intrigued to read this. That's on my um, list. It looks crazy, doesn't it? I was reading the synopsis and yeah, I want to read it. And then there's three poetry books and the only one I... Well, I should say what they are. Self-Portrait as Othello by Jason Allen Paysant. The Home Child by Liz Berry and Bright Fear by Mary Jean Chan. I read her debut collection, Fletch, Flesh. I never know how to say that. Anyway, it was really good. So we'll see. So I think the winner is in each of those three categories is announced in March. Yeah, intriguing. I mean, I'm not I'm not blown away by the list, I must say. Um, the Beasting, obviously, big fan, love it. I'd be happy if that won. But yeah, I, I, I'm not sure what I was expecting, but I'm just not blown away by it. Let's revisit. Yeah, let's do it. So let's move on to what we're actually going to talk about today. Spoiler-free chat about two new releases that we're quite looking forward to. What do you want to start with? Should we talk about Piglet first? Because it's a, it's a nice debut novel. And when's it coming out? Uh, 25th of January 2024. Okay, awesome. Let's talk about Piglet by Lottie Hazel. Yeah, let's do it. So Piglet, debut, as we've said, out on the 25th. It's published by Doubleday, which is an imprint of Penguin. 
And let's talk about who Lottie Hazel is to start with, I think. So she's a writer, a contemporary literature scholar and board game designer, which I thought was pretty cool. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, really cool. Not met a board game designer, and I think that sounds like a really fun job. Uh, She lives in Warwickshire. She holds a PhD in creative writing from Loughborough University, and her research considers food writing in 21st century fiction. And Piglet is, of course, her first novel. Mm. So no surprise, really, that this is a foodie book. Now, let's read the synopsis, because obviously people might not have read it yet, as it's, it's so new. Her life is so full, so why is she hungry? For Piglet, an unshakable childhood nickname, getting married is her opportunity to reinvent. Together, Kit and Piglet are the picture of domestic bliss, effortless hosts planning a covetable wedding. But if a life looks too good to be true, it probably is. Thirteen days before they are due to be married, Kit reveals an awful truth, cracking the facade Piglet has created. It has the power to strip her of the life she has so carefully built, so smugly shared. To do something about it would be to self-destruct, but what will it cost her to do nothing? As the hours count down to their big day, Piglet is torn between a growing appetite and the desire to follow the recipe, follow the rules. Surely with her husband, she could be herself again. Wouldn't it be a waste for everything to curdle now? Now, I do want to point out... Wow. I know know this is a foodie book, but I do feel with the synopsis, they've gone very heavy on it. (laughs) They have. I'm salivating. I, by the time I got to the last bit of like for everything to curdle now i was thinking again really like to me that felt a bit too much on the synopsis is that because this is your personal ick food writing no i just think with anything you can overdo something to be honest for me her nickname piglet and then that first sentence her life is so full so why is she hungry that that is enough to give the vibe of the book I don't know. They then needed to make pretty much every other sentence a food sentence. I'm literally like email- I'm, I'm emailing Doubleday now. Yeah, tell them. Yeah, <laughs> That's just, just my thoughts off, off the synopsis alone. I mean, what did you think from the synopsis before you went into the book? Listening to the synopsis and, and seeing the cover of the book as well, with that massive tower of donuts with all of the treacle or sauce dripping down. Mm. First of all, I thought, yuck, because I'm not a big fan of sugary food. And then when I engaged my brain, I thought... It might be quite a subversive book. I, well, firstly, I was hoping it wasn't about diet culture. I do not want to read a book about diet culture. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Disordered eating is something different, but diet culture, to fit into stereotypes, not interested. Don't want to read fiction, don't want to read nonfiction about that. Um, but like I said, I thought it might be quite a subversive book about food and women and control. Like other food-related books. And I'm, I'm thinking of the, the new release, Butter, by Asayo Yuzuki. that's just yes, come out yeah. in translation. The yellow one, isn't it? The, yes. Is it Japanese or Korean? I think it's Japanese. Amazing cover. And also the classic, which I love, The Vegetarian by Han Kang, mm-hmm. about a woman who just decides to stop eating meat and the repercussions that has on her life and the community that she lives in. I thought all of the, kind of the use of the pink on the cover and stuff, just because we do like to colour check, might be ironic... And we might be in for a bit of a tale of contemporary womanhood and body image, but potentially with a a revenge slasher element. Does that sound ridiculous? No, no. And I'm really intrigued by those thoughts that you had because I'm now I want to know how do you think that compares to actually reading the book? Well, spoiler, Piglet is not a slasher. It's not. It's definitely not. I would say there's an arc of revenge in it. Yes, yeah. And it's very satisfying, but it's not bloody violent 
killing people at the altar revenge. No, no, much more subtle. <laughs> yeah, so what did I think of Piglet? Yeah. Should we talk about the main character first? Piglet yes. herself? Piglet is her nickname and all characters refer to her as this or other nicknames or they shorten Piglet to Pig. Never her actual name, which I found really curious and I wondered what it was supposed to represent about her. Um, they do actually mention her real name. It's a blink and you'll miss it moment. Yes, but it's like three quarters of the way through. It's yeah. like near the end. And her boyfriend, a strange boyfriend, I don't think we're spoiling anything by saying that, who she's meant to be marrying, says her name. And it's quite a shock, actually, when he, when he says it. Because like you say, she, she's just been referred to as Pig throughout the whole novel. And then her real name comes up like a bomb exploding at this really crucial moment for her development as a character. Mm. I think calling her Piglet, I think it's originally meant to have been kind of like an affectionate childhood name that her family used. But it's kind of outstayed its, its welcome. It's not a great nickname, is it? It's if I mean, I would be pissed if people were calling me Piglet when I was a child. Even, well, as a as a young woman, yeah, I, it's yeah, it's not gr- great. Like connotations, I don't think it's going to make you feel good. Yeah, I think you'd have issues with body image straight off the bat. Yeah, I was, I did feel for her. I mean, just from the title alone and and the beginning. I mean, I, I must say, I wasn't looking forward to reading this. Always a great start. <laughs> yeah. Why weren't you looking forward to reading this? Because it's, I thought it was going to be so foodie because it is so foodie. And as I'd, I've previously said on the show, I previously made quite a big deal of being like, I don't like food books. It's an ick. And I think about an hour after I lent you my copy, you text me saying it's wall to wall food. And I was like, oh my God, am I going to hate it? I stand by that comment. And I don't think you actually text me back, which... Um, and I took that to mean yes you're going to hate it so I was like putting off picking it up because I was thinking this is going to be a slog I just thought you were really needy at that point I just thought do you know what read the book (laughs) read the book and suffer like the rest of us no this is actually a good book but sorry yeah I I mean when I finally opened it and then the first page was a kind of vignette of a busy waitrose I did a bit bit of a gulp but I did quickly realize thankfully I I don't think I was actually correct when I said I don't like books about food. Oh. I think I don't like books about when people are actually eating, reading people kind of like talking about chewing and yeah. swallowing and consuming. Whereas I love that. Yeah that's I think the issue because actually I quite enjoyed all of the elements where she's kind of making these different meals and she's talking about what she's making and we're seeing recipes and things like that that didn't actually bother me as I was reading I I got quite into this book which was a relief so and and sorry listeners if you're thinking oh wow this girl is so flimsy but no I you know one of my life rules is always be open to changing your mind having your mind change your opinions changed I think it makes for a well-rounded person. It's a good way to be. Yeah. So I, I've had my mind changed. I've learned something new about myself. I was quite happy with that. Can I just say on the food mm. element, I kind of feel like food is quite symbolic in this novel. Like you yes. said, there are there are loads of mentions of food, food, foodstuffs, dishes that Piglet makes, food that people eat. But I, I kind of also feel like food is a is a real kind of source of confidence for the lead character. She's she's got this ridiculous nickname. She's feeling a bit downtrodden. She's kind of in this claustrophobic relationship. And food is like, well, being able to cook well for other people feels empowering for her. Yeah, the whole thing feels like um, like an area of confidence for her, doesn't it? But the whole process of kind of buying the food, cooking, choosing a meal. I mean, even her job, so she works at Fork House. Yeah. She's editing cookbooks, essentially, or yeah. assistant editing cookbooks. So everything in her life is quite food 
Yeah, absolutely. So it's this weird mix of it takes her out of her comfort zone, but it's also giving her a sense of control. Mm. And I thought that all the scenes about eating out too were really interesting. There's a, there's a scene near the middle of the book where Piglet watches a woman sitting alone in a restaurant reading and eating high fat food as if this is like, like you know the most shocking thing for a woman to do by herself and you get that real sense of piglet craving that independence it's this, this idea of women without men life outside of traditional female roles yeah. and food is the gateway for that for piglet as a character yes yeah no i, I would agree with you there i'm intrigued because i i mean so we've obviously got piglet as our main character but then we've also got her other half kit who's from a wealthy family, whereas Piglet is not. Um, I'd quite like to know what you thought of Kit and Kit's family and kind of their treatment of Piglet. I feel like I can dispatch Kit quite quickly and say, I felt he read like a stereotypical mummy's boy, posh oh, mummy's yeah? boy. Yeah, okay. I, I didn't really get much more from his character. I was much more interested in his parents, Cecilia and Richard, mm. who are generally quite dislikable characters they live in Oxford. They're quite controlling about Kit and Piglet's lifestyle. They both patronise Piglet um, and make kind of like subtle digs because of her class background. Yeah. But it's weird because at the same time, Cecilia, the mother, especially, sees Piglet as raw material she can mould into an obedient middle-class housewife. And we should say Piglet is, is quite up for that initially in the yeah, novel that's what's really, this is the life she wants yeah this is what's really interesting i think is is that their treatment of her i don't think is great and there's uh, you know there's moments where i kind of winced on on same piglet's behalf but equally this seems to be what she's striving for or what she thinks she is at least she's kind of headed in that direction and has it in her head that this is you know she wants to integrate into kit's family she wants to be a part of this kind of middle class life and that seems to be what she wants like she kind of wants to be molded yeah. By Kit's mum. Well, she does progressively feel that this control is quite stifling, though. Mm. And I think that's one of the strengths of the book, her, her journey as a character, kind of breaking out of that stronghold that Kit's family have on her. And there's, there's a brilliant scene later in the novel, and I don't think I'm spoiling anything by talking about this, where her in-laws serve roast pork at a family Sunday lunch. And there's this implication, symbolically again, that they're consuming her her identity her body and she sees the situation for what it is and she ends up having to like rush out and physically vomit in the toilet she has a physical response to their control mm. I, I thought that was a really interesting scene i did find myself frustrated with piglet throughout the book i felt for her but i also i did want to shake her by the shoulders a bit and be like why is appearance so important to you like i really felt for her so, she, so her family is obviously not as wealthy she's got her family from I think it was from Derby, wasn't it? Yeah. And she's kind of really ashamed of them, ashamed of their behaviour and their kind of maybe lack of class as yeah, she sees absolutely. it. Yeah, absolutely. She's, she's trying to escape all of that yeah. and reinvent herself. And I just, not so much that she felt that, I did feel for her with that, but just she's so bothered by appearance and, and not necessarily physical appearance, but just how she projects herself to people, how she is seen, how her and Kit and their relationship is seen appearances are quite important to her and I just kind of wanted to shake her because I think that's such a, a rubbish way to live life to be so bothered by what how people view you and this idea that people cannot view you as flawed that everything has to appear perfect I really don't like that totally I mean we've all cringed at our parents before but I kind of feel she's she's quite cruel about her parents which takes it to a different level yeah you've almost got that feeling of sorriness for her that that she feels that way like I did feel bad 
for her, not because of her parents. There's nothing wrong with her parents. But I did... Well, there's nothing wrong with her parents. Well, Do we uh, want to talk about the family? Yes, yeah, go on then. I was going to say, as the kind of northern working class contingent in the novel, mm. I wanted to root for them, but they did not make it easy for me. No. I, the- I thought they were quite a complicated bunch. The fathers continued griping about money and his comments on Piglet's body when she can't in- fit into the wedding dress. You remember that wedding dress scene? Yeah, I don't, want, I don't think we should go into it too much because I, I, that feels like a plot. That does. It's not a spoiler because no, it's not part of the plot. But we're it, on the border of Spoilerville. Yeah, it's a, it's a big... That whole scene is a big moment in... And the following scene's a big part of the book, right? But yes, it, the dad definitely... There's problematic elements. But essentially, really, what family isn't problematic? You know, what family doesn't have elements of good parts, bad parts? To me, they felt very human. I think there was room for improvement for everybody in her, in her family. I did wince a little bit when Piglet approached her mother and said, you know, we, are, we have ups and downs in our relationship, me and Kit, and big things have happened and I'm not particularly happy. And the mother was like, basically, suck it up. Yes, there definitely was a generational thing there um, in terms of, you know, when she was trying to solicit feedback and, and advice from people. But then I also do think that Piglet played a part in that. I don't think she was a very good communicator. Even when she's going to someone trying to get advice, she's not really opening up about it. She's still very closed, still only wants to show a tiny bit. And the whole way through the book, this is making it sound like I didn't enjoy it, and I did. I read it in one sitting, had a great time. But there were moments that I was kind of cursing her herself and thinking, you are playing a part in this. Your behaviour is creating some of these situations. And if even just her and Kit, if you two talked more, which both of you play a role in. Or went to couples therapy. Yeah, it, it, however they I'm amazed they went in couples therapy, actually. I just think, well, they just didn't really communicate very well. Felt half of this could have been solved by them just sitting down and having com- more conversations, more honest conversations. Cup of tea, crumpet, and a, and a yeah. compassionate conversation. Yeah, a good old chat about what's going on for them and who they are. I felt like Piglet, before we move on, did mm. kind of redeem herself slightly, though, when you learnt about more of her relationship with her younger sister, Fran. And what Piglet had sacrificed for Frank. Yes, I mean, yes. I, I, I found that really moving. It was really moving and it... And, it, and Fran redeemed herself as well, I kind of mm. feel. Like she was the bratty baby of the family character, wasn't she? But she had her moments that made me laugh and I just thought, they do have quite a touching relationship as sisters. They do. And I think everybody in this, this book, I think they're all human, really. Some are worse than others. But that definitely came across that throughout the book, first appearances aren't always what they seem. Someone can do something horrible, but equally there can be a touching moment at different parts of the book. Yeah. I thought there was, there was layers to this, to everybody in it. What did you think of Piglet's friends? And I'm thinking of one friend in particular who took quite a, I can't say too much, keeping this spoiler free, who took quite a, a strong stance and yeah. wasn't okay with Piglet's de- decisions we're about ta- her relationship. We're talking about Margot. We are. I feel like Margot was the voice of reason in this novel and she wanted the best for her friend and I appreciate that that kind of disrupted this perfect life that Piglet was creating but I'm team Margot. I'm very intrigued by what you've just said that you're team Margot and she felt like a voice of reason I believe you said. Margot was a pregnant sassy lesbian of course I'm team Margot. Yes and I thought she was great and also Margot is one of my favorite names ever so amazing. I didn't like some of her behavior though. I, I understood the underlying reasoning for it and I understood that she wanted the best for Piglet 
But I don't think some of her actions were okay. I actually thought they were quite mean. Yeah, agreed. I, I don't... I did have a bit of a problem with this whole, I can't stand by you if you're going to do X. Because I think the idea of friendship is that you're there for each other and we cannot control what other people do. And that felt a lot like Margot trying to, you know, a bit of an ultimatum. She was a very all-or-nothing personality and Mm. I can appreciate that comes across as quite inflexible and uncaring and maybe a little bit smug at times I just thought their relationship was quite complicated as well by the fact that Margot was having a baby and Piglet kind of feels I mean this is from the the beginning of the novel you get Mm. this from the first page she feels kind of pushed out by this new child yeah I mean as with all relationships in this book it was nuanced and I, I, I don't want to say that Margot is either good or bad but I just there were parts where I was like come on that's not that doesn't feel fair but equally obviously heavily pregnant um had her own things going on and had moments where she was really lovely so yeah essentially yes many characters in this book are are very multi-layered talk to me about the boss uh, so her boss at the cookery book company the publishers so she's Sandra and I thought Sandra was quite a well-drawn character and quite surprising in the way that she came across um, she's quite nuanced in the way that she treats Piglet. I mm. don't know if you found that as well. So she pushes her for promotion. But then when Piglet talks to her about whether it's the right moment to take on extra work and stress, Sandra's quite understanding and starts talking Sandra, about mental health. I thought yeah. she was quite good. I'd be pleased if she managed me. She seemed like quite a nice boss in that she she was pushing, she pushes for Piglet to do better and for her staff to do better and to grow. But equally is kind of like, understanding and makes room for people's mental health and for the things going on in their life i thought well you can't really ask for much more in a boss no absolutely and my only criticism of sandra if i had one was she's just kind of like overworked and a bit oblivious so there's this scene with a leaving party and i just think she just put her foot in it because she just wasn't on top of the detail i don't think it was malicious oh yeah for me i was just like just don't have parties like that I hate hate leaving parties. Yes, that's not... I just was... There was no need for that and none of that would have happened. A crappy cake from M&S. Yeah, and let the staff... Really lacklustre speeches. No one cares. Just leave. We hate you. I'm having a real fiddle with my headphones um, and I'm getting really frustrated at the idea of work leaving parties. Just let the staff that really get on organise their own thing outside of work if they want to. If they want to have a little celebration, that can happen. I think as the boss, she didn't need to kind of micromanage good times. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's where I landed with that. So overall, what did you think of the book? I really enjoyed it. I found it quite stressful. I mean, it has the most stressful wedding cake assembly scene in any book I've ever read. Like it gave me sweaty palms reading it. And I had to like rush to my phone to find out what a croque and bouche was. I yeah, don't me know too. I'm pronouncing that correctly. But it was hilarious at the same time. I really enjoyed Piglet's character arc, how she developed I felt felt like the ending fitted. It was realistic in terms of what she could become in such a short space of time. Mm. We should say really briefly the kind of the way that the book's structured. It's almost like a countdown to her wedding day. So you get this really great sense of tension throughout the whole book. Um, It's almost like an oven timer going off. Yes, I thought that whether it was... There yeah, was a... and like what's going to happen when the timer starts ringing? Are we going to have a breakdown or are we going to have a resolution? Yeah. So I thought it was quite clever in that sense. What What were your overall feelings about the book? Essentially, it, to me, it boil, I, I would boil it down to, I thought it was a good book. I don't think it's going to stay with me the way that some books do. Great. Right, shall we talk about The Vulnerables by yes. Sigrid Nunez? Let's do it. Which is out already. 
It is. It's out in the world, um, confusingly multiple yeah, release like dates. You can buy it from an online book publisher whose name sounds like a rainforest. And you could do that for a, a couple of months. But some other publishers, and I know your distributor hasn't got it the, the hard copies until no, later this month. Yeah, us indies have kind of been left behind on this one. Yeah, it seems to be the way now. It's disappointing. I was really looking forward to this book. I enjoyed The Friend by Sigrid Nunes, which came out about five years ago now. Is that I the think. yellow one? Does that also have a dog on it? Yes, yeah. I think it came out in 2018, and that was the story about a writer whose longtime friend and mentor commits suicide and leaves them a Great Dane. And I just thought it was very funny. It was a very moving book. I really want to read that. I've got it on my to-read pile. Yeah, I would highly recommend that. And I think that was her seventh novel. So The Vulnerables is her ninth novel. I feel like I should say Sigrid Nunes kind of doesn't need any introduction. She's a amazing writer, nine novels in. She's based in New York City. She's also a cultural critic. I haven't read her previous novel yet, which is which is apparently really good. It's called What Are You Going Through? Have you heard about this one? Yes. I, you know, I haven't read any of her prior to... I've obviously read The Vulnerables for today, but this was my first foray into the world of Sigrid Nunes. Well, that got some very good reviews. And I think that follows a similar vein in the sense that it's all about friends helping each other. And I think in this case, friends coming to term with a terminal illness and the prospect of one of them choosing to end their life by assisted suicide. I was looking through Nunes' back catalogue online and I read some of the descriptions of her earlier novels and you, you can really see that many of her kind of key themes that she keeps coming back to are friendship, death, loss, I mean, our relationships with animals, which is big in, in this novel. And many of her protagonists as well, again, like this novel, are intellectuals or at least people who think deeply. And a lot of them are writers, teachers, intellectuals, people who work in publishing or at least with books. So I suppose in a way, The Vulnerables is Nunes continuing to plough a familiar furrow in that the story is told from the perspective of an older, I'm going to call her quirky, academic writer type who sees the world through the lens of literature and books. And over the course of the novel, well, the second half of the book anyway, she develops a friendship with a young man and a parrot. Should I read you the publisher sanction synopsis? Yes, go for after it. After me butchering the plot. No, I thought you did good, but go for it. Okay. A writer old enough to be considered a vulnerable in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic in New York City pets its spirited parrot named Eureka in her friend's luxury apartment. When the original pet sitter, a Gen Z college student, returns to the apartment, he and the narrator strike up an unlikely friendship. And can I just say straight off the bat that this synopsis and the many, many other synopses and publishing blurbs that I've read completely fail to capture or mention the first section of this book, which focuses, which is like 100 pages long, mm. which focuses on the death of the narrator's long-term friend, Lily, who's like quite a big character, whose funeral she attends with a group of their kind of like mutual long-standing friends who have like all of these pretty flower names you remember yeah. the friendship group and it's kind of ironic because they're all like really deeply opinionated forthright intellectual women and I kind of feel like why wasn't that sold as as like a reason to pick up the book yeah because that's what I loved about the book like a I like I love a book that's got an older character yeah me too. um there's so many books out there that that feature young people and I love mm. I always think that the older you get the kind of 
wiser everybody gets. And I loved being inside the mind of this this main character. Um, and I loved all those scenes with the her sort of friend group. And they were all, yes, very wise, very intellectual, very funny. Yeah. It was the highlight of the novel. To for be me. honest, the novel went downhill for me as soon as the, the pandemic got introduced. Okay, well, should we start with the, the pandemic then? Yes. Did you have any expectations going into this novel, given that it's quite heavily badged as a, a pandemic novel? No, I didn't read anything about I didn't even read the synopsis before I went into this. Okay, you went in completely blind. Yeah, I knew about a few of Sigrid's other books that I wanted to read, but I was like, oh yeah, we sh- when you, you said oh, we could do this one for our new book releases and I thought yeah great I really wanted to read Sigrid just I didn't have any ideas I didn't know it was a pandemic novel which I don't think helped me because then as soon as that that came in and as soon as I realized that was going to be a big part of of the kind of scene setting I was like oh Mm. balls (laughs) (laughs) that's really interesting because I did know I'd seen the publicity and it said this is a pandemic novel COVID-19 novel and I suppose in a way the, the the pandemic this is in the second half of the book and lockdown it's kind, of, it's kind of reflected in the style and the form of the book. So it's, it's quite... The main character finds herself with all this free time to kind of reflect on her life, her childhood, growing older, and muse on the current political and social situation in the States. But I didn't feel the pandemic was a, a big day-to-day focus in the book. There's some sections, but I'm thinking of books where the realities of kind of na- navigating the pandemic felt more present. To me, at least, like The Sentence by Louise Erdrich. Have you read mm-hmm. that? Yeah, I, I mean, I've started a lot of these books that are, are pandemic-y books and given up because I, to me, it's too recent. I'm, I'm, I'm not over how boring it... That sounds really... Boring, perhaps, that isn't the right word. I know what you mean. It's... I'm fatigued by it all, you know? Yeah. We, we went through it and now we can't let go of it. It's like, this is the kind of book that I'd probably really enjoy if I read in six years' time when it feels a bit more of a distant memory. Yeah. Whereas I still feel, despite it's being like four years, I still very much feel like that only just happened. <laughs> so I'm still trying to just... We're still processing recent. it. It's yeah. recent history. I think in terms of the the plot of the book as well, I kind of feel like the pandemic was used as, as a device to keep her and the young man who's called Vetch, she calls him Vetch or V, together in the apartment to give them the time and the space to kind of develop their relationship in in isolation and to see what would happen but for me at least it it did feel like it could have been something else that had brought them together just a straightforward house sitting mix up or yeah or another have, narrative device i would have much preferred it if it was that situation where they'd just been asked to house it and there was a there was a, a mix up that i probably would have ended up feeling totally different about this novel yeah I mean, there are a few kind of dark scenes about the pandemic in the book, should say, if you're sensitive to that. And I think they're quite well handled. She does talk about being depressed. She talks about having cave syndrome, losing her sense of taste, although she's not got COVID. And there's an amazing scene where she goes for a walk in New York City early one morning and it's like this beautiful, glorious day. And she's like reborn. And then she has a really awful encounter with someone randomly, which is linked to the pandemic. Mm. Anyway, we won't say anything about that. But... Yeah, I didn't really feel like it was a pandemic novel. So should we talk about the core relationship at the kind of the centre of the novel? Yes, yeah. So as in our, our narrator and Vetch. And Vetch. Yeah, I didn't like Vetch. Okay. I kind of liked the ra- talk to me. The relationship that developed between them. I, I do quite like a storyline where it's two unexpected people finding that their way together in a sense that they you know at the start you think oh these people are going to have nothing in common and then they discover actually 
they do and and that kind of that element I quite liked but I guess I just couldn't get over somebody that is meant to be pet sitting just abandoning a pet I, I that that I, I as a huge animal lover I just could n- never forgive Vetch for that I feel like that's deliberate. He's painted as a very flaky character and he de- he does definitely annoy the narrator initially with his flippancy and his lack of consideration, his general Gen Z ways, if I can say that, without judging a whole generation of people. I thought it was nice, though, that they did, they gradually started to bond. That only really started when they, they began taking drugs. Yeah, but I just, yeah, and I... I... I think I'm going to have to reread this novel in the future and I, and then come back to this episode when it goes out because I just couldn't get pa- I couldn't get past that bit. I, I thought, great, yeah, it seems like he... I, and I don't think flakiness is necessarily a bad thing, but flakiness when you're... It's an animal life and that animal could have died if she wasn't available to go in and Oh, wow, we're still, we're still on the parrot. Yeah, I can't get over it, sorry, OK? Sorry, <laughs> You're trying to move me away and I, I shall not be moved. I well yeah I mean Vetch yeah I agree he's a difficult character I kind of feel like the the narrator feels progressively kind of a bit sorry for him yeah Um, especially when she finds out about his parents his mother is this really highly strong mercurial poet figure whose writing career hasn't quite taken off and she's got a lot of resentment and frustration which seems to be displaced onto Vetch and he's he's been pushed out of the family home Mm. and I think the mother's even written a memoir Again, this isn't a spoiler. This is up front. Yeah. She's written a memoir about how difficult she found being a mother and parenting Veg. It's a lot to deal with. Part of me did feel, though, that when he did open up and talk about his life and his problems, I'm just thinking, rich New York City kid problems. Yeah, I mean, I'm shrugging my shoulders. Poor you with your house in Vancouver and your summer home in Connecticut and, yeah, dating all these beautiful people. I, I, I couldn't help but think... I didn't really feel sorry for him particularly. I kind of, that's not to say his life was perfect, but nobody's is. I just, I just kind of found, my, found myself thinking like, I don't, maybe I was just too cynical while I was reading this whole book. But just go to therapy. That's I, our answer I, for everything, isn't it? Go I to know. therapy. Yeah, like I just feel like a therapist would take you seriously. You, you would get that what you needed. Clearly he needed someone to take him seriously and, and he was looking for like, you know, uh, he wanted someone to be like, poor you. And a therapist won't necessarily do that, but they'll sit in silence that might give you the idea that they, you know, they'll accept your your narrative. That is the thing with therapy. Yeah. What you bring, a, a therapist kind of has to take on as what's going on. And I just felt like, yeah, you. I, I felt he was kind of using our narrator as as a bit of a, to offload that it all the way through you know she was she was definitely an, an ear wasn't she yeah like, although she never kind of she never felt used that didn't come across i don't think she but got she, that she feeling. was the listener but i i got that feeling i got that yeah and i thought you know if if we if this was a book that the vetch had written and was recounting his time then would he even i didn't feel like she'd be a main character for him that was Harsh. the vibe I got was that he'd just think like, oh, this, I just, yeah, I, you, you know, I just shacked up with this old lady and this parrot. And that would be kind of like, it would be an anecdote for him. That's the vibe I got. I just want to mention one other thing about their relationship, mm. which is that weird, ambiguous sexual tension that keeps coming up. You know, there's that moment where he says, oh, it's really hot one evening and he's like I'm gonna go and sleep out on the roof and she's like if I'd been younger I'd go and join him on the roof and she keeps referring to how beautiful he is all the time 
and like muscular and it's like it just feels a bit lechy yeah that part just and mm. not because there's an age difference i just thought why does there need to be this i just kind of wanted her to go for it i thought if it was going to come up <laughs> then then go shack of your life yeah go claim like, this young lock man. the parrot in another room lock the parrot up go and mount this young man and be done with it because i don't think it matters with the age difference like it felt a bit yeah, as you say, lechy and like nothing really happened with it. So it to me, it was a bit of a, why is this in here? Yeah, absolutely. And just going back to the publishing blurb, they made such a big thing about this relationship. I felt like it was a blinking you miss it part of the narrative. Yeah, I, it really was for me. I, you know, I obviously saw, I saw some of your pointers of what we were going to discuss when we discussed this book. And I had to think about it because that yeah. wasn't the main thing of the book for me. Well, we've already talked about Eureka, your team Eureka. I love you're, you're that his, was the highlight of the book for me. <laughs> that was the the part I was most intrigued with. I was more interested in her relationship with Eureka, an animal companion especially in a time of isolation. Yeah. I was more I wanted more of that. Yeah. And I thought he was really well drawn because I think it's really difficult to portray animal characters and I have almost zero experience with macaw parrots but I totally believed in Eureka. I All did. of his little happy dances and his little like Aggie side eyes when he didn't get fed on time. I mean, he was a really kind of fully fleshed out character. Yes, I thought he was done really well and, and I wanted more of that. I was more invested in her relationship with the parrot than I was with this bloke. Yeah, absolutely. Although I will say that Eureka's kind of a stand-in surrogate child for them. They, they fight over him a little bit. Yeah, over his and again, attention. I didn't love that because I wanted to see how it blossomed between our narrator and the parrot. That's what I was interested in. I, d- I could, Vetch could have been written out and I would have been. A parrot human love story told in the time of yeah. COVID 19. And then and her friends, that and, and the, the connections and the communication she kept up with some of her friends, I would have been happy with that. So, in your ideal book, would she just like be texting her friends about the relationship she's having with the parrot and they'd be saying, it's going too far too quickly? <laughs> have you considered therapy? Yeah, essentially. Great. One thing I was going to mention about mm. this book, pressing on, is I felt, even with all of my English literature degrees, it was a very readerly book. Mm. It contains a lot of references to largely 20th and 19th century authors. There's not many contemporary writers in here, if at all, actually. And lots of references to literary history. And I often found that the main character uses a moment in the biography of a famous author to kind of go off on a tangent about contemporary life and culture. It just made me think, if um, if you're not clued up on all of this literary history and biography are you at a disadvantage reading this book i mean how did how did you feel as someone who has no knowledge of such learned things this is me in that i i don't i don't think of myself as as very literary and as we know i am very contemporary you are you're Um, here now (laughs) yeah so modern yeah i I all went over my head to be honest that kind of stuff i also i don't love a kind of i don't love when those things are shoehorned into books and did you feel that that was happening with this? Yeah, a bit kind of name droppy. I did too. Yeah. Why? What I did couldn't, and perhaps it's because I don't have the knowledge of them. I couldn't see what it was adding to the story. Right. Okay. No, that makes sense. But given that I am a massive literary history nerd, I did really enjoy some of the literary quotes and some of the anecdotes. Can I just tell you some of my favourite mm, ones? Yes. This is like a, a pop pick of my favourite quotes. Okay. So the bit about Charles Dickens. 
I did not know that he was an abusive father and husband and that he told his son he preferred his fictional child characters to his actual living son. Sad. I mean, we, we've all felt like that, but I mean, Charles Dickens, what a disappointment. Love this quote from Brian Moore. I feel like I want to put this on a T-shirt. While success makes you something you weren't before, failure makes you a more intense distillation of who you are. That whole section about Marcel Proust, mm. whose work, I, the, the, the French writer whose work I love. And she says something along the lines of his biographer says that Proust enjoyed masturbating to the sound of live rats squealing as they were pierced with hat pins. Weird. Very niche. <laughs> I love the fact that I'm like, what the actual fuck? Like my stomach is jumping somersaults and you're really like, okay, next. Well, everyone's got their kinks. They I, have. There's pretty much everyone is turned on by something. Let's, like, let's not kink shame. I don't think we should. Yeah, I don't think we should shame them. Because we're not much. alone here. James, the producer, is here as well. So... Um, and is this your thing, James? What, the, the rats? Yeah. 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 That's fair, give it a try. <laughs> is it maybe a bit harsh on the, on the rats? Harsh on the rats? Yes, yeah. as, a, as, the, as the animal welfare uh, officer of this episode. Yeah, absolutely. I think Peter are going to have an issue with this. But anyway, pressing on. I finally, I love the pop culture reference to Madonna. Do you remember at the beginning mm. of the book where she's writing that essay about Madonna and her publisher back in the like 80s goes... Oh, we should take this out because no one's going to know about her in five years' time. Oh, weren't they wrong? Oh. Okay, so we've, we've touched on it a bit. I just yes. want to get your kind of final thoughts on the first half, half of the novel, which I think is the undisputed kind of highlight for both of us. What, yeah. what did you think of that pre-pandemic section where it's the group of friends chatting? Loved it. Like, what, loved did it. You, the dynamic and everything. I loved their dynamic. I loved their insights on life and just the kind of conversations they had. I was really drawn into all of that stuff. And I was like, oh, strong start to the book. Really enjoying this. Can't wait to see how this progresses. And then it switched and it all went downhill from there for me. Just going back to what you said, I mm. loved I loved all of the, the topics that they were discussing. Yeah. Like in just really quick fire. So they were talking about consent culture. They were about talking about using safe words during sex, which was hilarious. That was really funny. They talked about what a world would look like without men toxic masculinity and i think they were talking about something we've mentioned quite a few times before can men write female characters in literature yeah and as critical as they were of millennial and gen z positions on all of these subjects they were never kind of outright dismissive of them they were well-rounded conversations they took on all kinds of views it was i thought i found it fascinating okay so final thoughts on the novel not really a fan, but I'm hoping that it was the pandemic element that put me off. And I'm going to, I think I'm going to give The Friend a go and then some of other, Sigrid's other books. Because I am, the themes that she talks about are things that I love in a book. So I don't want to give up on her yet. Great. Yeah. I thought it was an interesting short novel. It's just over 200 pages. It's about taking stock of one's life mm. um, and the role of kind of art and literature that that plays in your life and how it can enhance it and also your relationships. I preferred The Friend, but I'm glad I read this. Okay, guys, now we're at that part of the show where we try to help one of our listeners find their next must-read book. Are we ready? We are ready. Our request today comes from Sanya. Hi, Novel Thoughts. I've recently read Elif Batchman's campus novel series, Either Or, and I'm a bit obsessed with campus novels now. So if you have a similar recommendation, I would love that. Thank you. Okay. Mm. 
I'm going to recommend The Life of the Mind by Christine Smallwood. Have you heard of this yes, one? Yes, good, good recommendation there. It's her debut novel, which came out in 2021, and I think it's brilliant. I'm going to read the publisher blurb. Yes, um, go as I think it's just the perfect fit. So Christine Smallwood's debut is a campus novel like no other, piercingly intelligent and darkly hilarious. It moves from a classroom to an underwater puppet show, from a conference in Las Vegas to a karaoke party. It is a discomforting glimpse into the head of a brilliant woman on the edge. It is a novel about endings of youth, of professional aspiration, of possibility, of the illusion that our minds can ever free us from the tyranny of our bodies. So give that a go. Mm. What about your recommendations? My first thought of was My Dark Vanessa by Kate Elizabeth Russell, which is about a 15-year-old student's, uh, in quotation marks, relationship with her 45-year-old teacher. And a lot of that is set in an academic setting and quite a powerful book. I'd also recommend, of course, The Secret History, if you've not already read it, Absolutely. by Donna Tartt. Yeah. We have to mention that as, as it's a classic almost. And then lastly, The Nicks by Nathan Hill. Now, I do want to caveat that and say I've not finished mm. The Nicks, but it is it's a really good book. I love Nathan Hill. I loved Wellness, but this one is about college and, and all those kind of campus vibes. That's great. Oh, I've just thought of another one, actually. Mm, a book with a really crazy campus novel section to it is White Noise by Don DeLillo. Oh, yes. Good shout. Yep. Ah, well, hopefully there's something there for you. Do let us know whether we've kind of hit the mark with that. That's just about the end of the show, guys. Next week, Michelle will be joining us for a deep dive into Donna Tartt's brilliant novel, The Goldfinch. So make sure you join us for that. We'll also be chatting about all the books we've read that week and dishing out some great recommendations to more of our lovely listeners. As always, links to everything we've been talking about today will be in the show notes. Please feel free to like and subscribe to the pod. Tell a friend or leave us a review. It all helps. If you're looking for your next great read and you'd like to be part of the show, send us your recommendation request to ntpramsgate at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at novelthoughts underscore pod. Bye. Bye.